Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. Uh, let's go into something that I think confuses a lot of people. And this is, you know, I always talk about how the banks can create their own money. They can create limitless dollars. There's nothing constraining the banks except for counterparty risk. And there's no way to know that definitively because we've got shadow banking and we don't really know exactly how it works. We can just kind of guess and use other charts of like bank reserves and M2 money supply and then like global dollar denominated debt. And we just kind of have to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But the the pushback I get often is, well, George, if banks can create their own money, why don't they just create all this money and buy everything? Like, why don't they just buy all the gold? Why don't they just create all the money they want? Just buy every house on the planet. Why don't they just buy the entire stock market? And this is actually a really good question. And it ties in to a back and forth I had today on Twitter with uh, my good buddy, Bob Murphy. And Bob is a very famous Austrian economist, probably one of the most famous. And uh, obviously, really smart dude. And he writes for uh, Mises.com, uh, I believe, quite often. And um, he responded to a tweet that I have with this article, which walks through how the banks operate, which gives you some insight as to why most people who understand banks create money or create money through additional lending. Uh, it, it illustrates how they see the constraint in the banking system going back to the reserves. And then I just offered a thread where I just had a, a, a counterpoint that um, I believe is accurate based on Snyder and a lot of people that I've studied and then just doing about a million whiteboard videos on this stuff and uh, just kind of looking at other statistics. But again, no one knows for sure because it's in the shadows. But I think we can tell um, that the probabilities are high. that there are These, especially reserves, really don't constrain the banking system. So let's go into this. I think you guys will get a kick out of it. And it is a question that probably all of you have asked at one point. It's just, if the banks can create all this money, why don't they buy everything? <laughs> Uh, and then why is it that there's no constraint on banks other than counterparty risk? Like you say all the time, George. Okay, so let's dive into it. First, I want to go to this uh, tweet that, that Bob sent out this morning. He says, this morning I've seen two big econ Twitter accounts, including George Gammon, question textbook accounts of how central bank commercial banks interact to create money. The at, uh, to at least help conversation, I try to reconcile opposing camps in chapter 12 here. And he links to this fantastic article. And I just wrote, I, I just read chapter 12, but it is well worth reading. Um, Bob's obviously a heck of a lot better writer than, than I am. I'm, I'm terrible. And uh, he can, he, he articulates the position very, very well. So let's go over to Bob's article. And this is, titled Understanding Money Mechanics, or it might even been an ebook, and going down to chapter 12, which Bob references in his tweet where he at mentions me. So he goes through, uh, you know, kind of this textbook view of banking, where banks are kind of intermediaries, where they just take deposits, and then they lend out deposits. And I think most people that watch this channel know um, or have been watching this channel enough to know or watch Snyder or other people out there to know, like uh, Richard Warner is another example, 
that this this is not true. Uh, this is not true. That the, the banks uh, they are creating new money, and uh, so then he goes, uh, Bob. He talks about the Bank of England and their report uh, that they came out with in 2014. Now, for those of you who have watched the George Gaiman channel for quite some time, you know I have referenced this report from the Bank of England probably a hundred thousand times. <laughs> I have read it up, down, sideways, left, right, you name it. And uh, and it, it talks about uh, just kind of these two uh, schools of thought, uh, which Bob kind of contrasts and compares them and explains them very, very well. And then he kind of comes to a conclusion. So now let's go ahead and uh, read this alleged myth number one where Bob is kind of uh, reconciling these two schools of thought. And again, I strongly suggest reading this because I'm just paraphrasing. I, I don't want to uh, put words in, in in Bob's mouth. And this is just a few pages here, definitely worth your time. So uh, this particular myth is largely a matter of semantic, uh, semantics, but the Bank of England treatment might mislead some readers we will attempt to clarify. So he gives this great example. So suppose uh, we'll call it bank A uh, starts a position where customers have a hundred million in deposits with the bank. In other words, uh, if you had added the checking account account balances, it's hundred million. Okay, got that. Uh, same time, Acme Bank or bank A starts with 10 million in reserves. Uh, the reserves consist of 2 million vault cash, which should pro uh, probably be a lot lower than that. But uh, that's okay for the sake of the example. Eight million in uh, bank, O's, bank A's own account held at the Fed. Got it. Now, Bank uh, A decides to grant new loans to business owner in the tune of $5 million. So this takes their deposits, he points out, to 105. Uh, it's certainly true that the act of granting new loans did not itself reduce the amount of Acme's reserves, right? Because they still have the 10 million. And so then he goes to point out that even if they uh, took this additional $5 million, they, the borrower, who is a customer, let's say, of Bank A, and they spent that $5 million, let's say they bought a, a, a building or something like that. And if the seller was banking with Bank A, then there would re really be nothing that would happen other than on the liability side of their balance sheet because Bank A would just simply deduct the five million from uh, the the buyer's bank account or the borrowers, and they would simply add the five million to the account of the seller of the building. That's it. Balance sheet really doesn't change. But Bob accurately points out that if the customer, the borrower, is buying this building from a seller who banks with let's say bank B, then the transaction is significantly different. So how is it different? Let me see if I can go to Bob's words here. Okay, however, most of the recipients of the new spending will typically be customers of other banks. So the, the recipients of the new spending that's a result of the new loan being created. Suppose that the new created $5 million, 80% of it, that is 4 million gets spent on goods and services provided by people who bank somewhere other than Bank A. After Bank A and the other banks in the community engage in clearing operations, ACME or Bank A must settle up with them and transfer $4 million in reserves. Now, here is where I would start to 
want to clarify things. So let, let's remember that what they're doing is they're transferring a liability. That $4 million that bank A is transferring to bank B is a deposit liability. It's on the liability side of the bank's balance sheet. So when they transfer that $4 million, they also have to transfer an offsetting liability. Okay. So that that's, or excuse me, an offsetting asset, an offsetting asset, in which case reserves definitely qualify. But there's, there's something here that, and Bob goes through this in detail and he's just spot on, bam, 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 bam. But what he didn't discuss is the fact that if you are transferring for, excuse me, if you're transferring a $4 million liability to bank B, you can offset that transaction with a $4 million asset, or, or you can offset that liability by reducing the liability side of bank B's balance sheet by the $4 million, either or. It's not just settling up with the asset side of the balance sheet. So let me uh, go over, and I just quickly did a little whiteboard here for you guys so you could see what I'm talking about. And again, I would strongly encourage everyone, not only following Bob on Twitter, but listening to his podcast. I know I'm I'm a big fan. I listen to his podcast all the time. And I think it's called The Bob Murphy Show. And um, and then, you know, just definitely follow his work. It's, it's well worth your time. So now let's uh, go over to this little whiteboard that I just drew up on the left-hand side of yesterday's whiteboard video. <laughs> you can see me. I'm kind of standing out of the way trying to uh, get my scrawny legs out of the picture here. So we start with bank A and we've got bank B, okay? And on bank A's balance sheet, you've got assets left, liabilities right, and the cash they have on their on the asset side of their balance sheet is offsetting the deposits. Okay, great. So let's just assume for the sake of this example that their assets, this cash they have on their balance sheet, right? You're pointing at bank A, is held in a deposit account of bank B. Just like the average Joe or Jane would have a deposit account with Wells Fargo, Bank of America might have a deposit account with Wells Fargo. So this cash on their balance sheet is a liability of bank B. It isn't necessarily a liability of the Fed. And you can say, George, well, most of the, you know, 99.9% .9 of the settlements uh, are, actually occur on the Fed's balance sheet. Okay, fine. Today, maybe. And that's a big maybe. We really don't know. Prior to 2007, I would argue that was a much, much, much lower percentage. And I've actually had this conversation quite a few times with Snyder and with my good friend, Joseph Wang. And both of them admit that uh, when you get outside of the United States and the Euro dollar system, there, there's very little of the actual settlement process that takes place on the Fed's balance sheet. And it's mostly just these, you know, if you want to call them a Nostro Vostro account, the XRP guys like that, or, I mean, just the easiest way to think about it is it's just an account that bank A has with bank B, an account that bank B has with bank A. So same thing for bank B. Their assets are just simply the deposits they have at bank A that is the, the liability here. So now let's assume that bank B uh, creates a loan. 
And so we see that I just got, I have a new balance sheet drawn down here. So what would happen? Just like Bob says, they now have a new asset on their balance sheet, which would be the loan, but they also have a new deposit. And you could say this is the new deposit for $5 million just using the same numbers. Okay. Well, as we know, that's no big deal. If the, uh, if the, the person that is borrowing this money wants to spend it with someone who already has an account with bank B, because then it's just this transaction on the liability side of the balance sheet. No problem. No problems there at all. But let's just assume that the seller of the stuff has a bank account with bank A. Okay. So what would happen is the, uh, is bank B would need to send them this deposit liability, right? But since they have an account with bank A, let's just say they have an account for $5 million. They wouldn't necessarily have to send them an asset. Uh, they just basically say, hey, uh, they don't have to send them reserves as an example. They just say, hey, bank A, go ahead and reduce my account balance by uh, $5 million and go ahead and add $5 million to the account balance of XYZ seller for my customer. And so what happens here, and then of course the, the buyer, the borrower gets the building and we didn't, we we're not showing his balance sheet here. So what happens is the old account here for bank B, the, uh, the um, account balance goes down to zero and this is replaced with the, the new account for the seller going up by $5 million. And then, so when the transaction is done, and this would be uh, bank, ah, this would be bank B's balance sheet. Then it would, instead of having the cash as an asset, it would just have the new loan and it would have the original deposit that is the asset of bank A. So this is how you can transfer a deposit liability to another bank without having to transfer an offsetting asset in the form of bank reserves. Because again, they likely had another account, uh, or they, the transferring bank had an account that the receiving bank can just reduce by the amount of the liability that's being sent to them to begin with. And so th this is what Snyder refers to as uh, ledger money. And how much of this exists, especially outside of the United States, what percentage of the transactions are settled this way? Who knows? No, nobody really knows. But, but I can tell you definitively that there are just, I would say even the majority of the transactions, maybe, maybe the vast majority are settled in this manner. Why? Because we know there's probably what a hundred plus trillion uh, dollars outside of the United States. How on earth can all the money going back and forth be settled on the Fed's balance sheet? It's just there's no way. Even with the 3.5 trillion that they have in reserves, and especially when you go back and think about the fact that in 2007 they only had 40 billion, 40. 40 billion with a B of bank reserves on the Fed's balance sheet. And you had, what, 7 trillion in M2 money supply? Now, it's true that they had about an $800 billion balance sheet because you had a lot of cash in there. That assumes that all the cash is somehow owned by the banks. And I don't think, 
I mean, probably half that cash is probably in some vault down here in Pablo Escobar's mansion down here in Colombia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to say that uh, that's what the banks are transferring back and forth, I, I don't think so, especially in 2007. So this is is why, uh, and, you know, you always hear Snyder say that it, the euro dollar system is cashless and reserveless. So if it's reserveless, you know, what asset are they sending over? They might not be sending over an asset. They might just be reducing the liability side as much as they're adding to the liability side by sending that over to the new bank to begin with. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Now that we understand this, let's go ahead and move on to the real interesting question, which is, why don't the banks, if they can, you know, this basically what happened here is Bank A just deposited, uh, let's just say, $10 million in Bank B's account. Bank B did it for Bank A. Funny money, Fugazis, pixie dust, <laughs> right? Like Matthew McConaughey says. Uh, so why don't they just, you know, just continue to buy all this? All, why don't they buy everything in the world? Bottom line. Okay, let's go over to the other picture. And here we go. So now let's assume, like I said, that this was just a loan. So the way the balance sheet would, would actually look is you've got the deposit for bank B, and then you've got uh, bank A's cash, which is uh, a deposit on the liability side for bank B here. But they did this just by lending each other the, we'll call it 10 million bucks. So in this case, uh, bank A would also have a loan to bank B for a million bucks as an asset, but then they would have a loan for a million bucks as a liability that they owe to bank B. Okay. Well, as you guys can tell, these are just kind of offsetting. If bank A owes bank B a million bucks and bank B owes bank A a million bucks, then it's kind of a wash. So what you're left with is pretty much the, the balance sheet that we started with right here when you just X out those loans or net out those loans. So now uh, let's just assume that uh, bank B, instead of creating a loan, let's say they actually want to buy something. So this is where we get down to the brass tacks where rubber meets the road. So bank B wants to use this money that they just got from bank A, uh, just pixie dust, thin air, no reserves, no cash, nothing, just magically out of thin air. They want to use that to buy a treasury from bank C. 
So bank C's balance sheet starts with that treasury as an asset and a, let's say a customer deposit liability on the right-hand side of their balance sheet. So bank B needs to come up with a way to, okay, they've got this cash and let's just say that they're buying uh, $10 million worth of treasuries. So after the transaction, the treasury would go from bank C's balance sheet over to bank A. So you can see this second balance sheet that I have here for, for bank uh, for bank B. Did I say bank A? I'm sorry. I meant going from bank C to bank B. Okay. And then let's remember that uh, bank A, that their cash was a liability of bank A. So bank A would somehow need to get that money over to bank C, all right? So what they do is they say, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and pay you in a roundabout way for bank B. So this liability that they had for $10 million to bank B would go away. But then so would the cash, right? So what ends up, so then now their balance sheet has no asset, no liability. So how did that work? What ended up happening? Well, basically what bank B did is they just said, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and give you $10 million bank C and your new $10 million asset will be a liability of bank B. Because remember, now they no longer have the liability because uh, bank A's cash is gone because that's what bank A used to pay bank C because that was... uh, because they're uh, because they had to send over that offsetting liability, therefore the offsetting asset, right? So in this case, the balance sheet just to reiterate, liabilities zero, asset zero for bank A. But then what happens is uh, bank B would go ahead and have a ten million dollar deposit liability for bank C. So when you get done with this transaction, what it uh, ends up looking like is bank B has the treasury. Uh, Bank B still has a $10 million deposit liability. But now, instead of that liability being to Bank A, it's just to Bank C, okay? And then let's assume, and now what we have is Bank C has the cash on their balance sheet, and then they still have that original deposit liability, let's say the average Joe, uh, on the right-hand side. But now you could run into the same problem, where what if, Bank C wants to go ahead and transfer that money to uh, Bank B or Bank A, let's say. And what does Bank B do? Because they still, they're not going to be able to, they might be able to transfer that treasury. Maybe in the euro dollar system in the shadows, that might work out. But technically, you know, they'd have to have some sort of, let's say, bank reserves or something like that using Bob's example. But what they can do is just basically what they started with is they say, okay, we'll go ahead and send this deposit liability back to Bank A. But remember, Bank A's balance sheet now doesn't have any assets. So what are they going to uh, trade? Let's see, how are they going to offset this liability that they just sent over to them? Well, Bank B just says, hey, Bank A, lend me the $10 million. And Bank A says, okay, fine. So now Bank A's balance sheet as a loan, as an asset to Bank B for the $10 million. And they have the $10 million deposit liability that Bank B sent to Bank A for Bank C. And so now 
what they've effectively done is Bank B still has the treasury that they bought from Bank C as an asset on their balance sheet. But instead of this deposit liability to Bank C, now they just have a loan for $10 million that they owe Bank A. And you say, and those of you who are really following that might say, well, George, that's kind of unfair because Bank B, you know, they did this loan for $10 million with Bank A and then Bank B and all these things. And, you know, Bank A really wasn't able to buy the treasury. They weren't able to buy $10 million worth of gold or real estate. Uh, They just ended up with this loan back to Bank B. Right. You're only looking at one side of the transaction because then Bank B could basically do the exact same thing for Bank A if Bank A wanted to buy something. And this just goes around and around and around and around and around in a circle. And in fact, I could make this about 50,000 times more complicated if I added in uh, Bank C actually have an account with Bank A and Bank B. And what about Bank D, E, F? What about about Bank 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? (laughs) See, this is all just a network of electronic ledgers. That's all it is. That's all it is. And there is nothing, there is nothing. I mean, you, I guess there's maybe an argument that Basel three, but I think that they could just ensure the asset side of their balance sheet. Cause let's keep that in mind because Basel three, they'll say, well, you know, you've got these risky loans here. So you've got to have a higher capital requirement. Okay. But let's not forget that all these banks are in cahoots and they're all part of the same network. So they just bank C says, oh, you know, I'm really having a hard time with this stupid Basel three. I've got all these risky loans on my balance sheet. So I've got this dumb capital requirement. That's let's whatever, say it's 10%. And man, it's really prohibiting me from expanding my balance sheet. So bank C says to bank A, hey, can you give me some insurance on this? Let's just say it's in the form of like a CDS, like a credit default swap. And bank A says, yeah, sure. We'll go ahead and insure the asset side of your balance sheet. So now all of these risky assets are not risky, even in the eyes of the regulator. Why? Well, because they've got this pristine insurance from bank A. And now all of a sudden their capital requirement goes from whatever, let's say 10% down to 1%. (laughs) And then bank A says, Hey, bank C, I'm having the same problem. Can you go ahead and insure the asset side of my balance sheet? They say, yeah, cool. Let's grab dinner and some beers Friday night. Yeah, let's do it. And then then the bank A has the, the credit default swap or insurance, whatever you want to call it, from uh, bank C. And then they can go ahead and expand their balance sheet, even playing by the regulator's game. <laughs> so once you start to really, really get into the weeds and and draw up the balance sheets and just think through these trends, you know, think through 5, 10, 20, 100 different transactions and how it could work in the absence of green pieces of paper and bank reserves. You, you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together and, it, and you start to say, oh, I, yes, this is how they could do it. This is how they could do it. Bam, they could do it this way. They could do it this way. They could do it. And I haven't even talked about borrowing and repo. We haven't even talked about that. They could do it all these different ways. And this is why I, I say, so what, why can't they buy everything in the whole planet Earth? Because at the end of the day, it boils down to counterparty risk because they have to, if let's just say uh, Bank B bought uh, a billion dollars worth of gold or something like that. Okay, then they'd have that gold on their balance sheet. 
but can you really transfer that if you need to uh, transfer that deposit li- that offsetting deposit liability? I, I don't know if you could really transfer the gold, right? So uh, if they could make money on the transaction, they probably would. And if it was liquid, they they would they could probably do all these things, and they could probably find a way around it. But remember, in order for them to make this transaction happen, I'm talking them meaning Bank B when they're transferring that uh, deposit liability of Bank C to Bank A, they have to have the cooperation of Bank A. And why? Because Bank A gave them an additional $10 million loan. So this is where I say that there's no limits on the amount of cash they can create, that there's zero limits. It's just counterparty risk. Because if Bank B, if Bank A wasn't willing to lend that $10 million to Bank B, now they'd be stuck. They'd be stuck. And that goes right back to what Bob was saying, where now they've got a deposit liability for Bank C for $10 million, but they don't have any way to settle, assuming that 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 they, let's just assume for a moment, that Bank B didn't have any money in the account they had at Bank A. Therefore, they would have to settle with the asset side of their balance sheet. And if all they have is a treasury, or if all they have is a big pile of gold, or, or real estate in Malaysia, <laughs> you know, Bank A might not... No, no, we're not going to accept that. And so that's where they really run into problems. But again, it goes right back to counterparty risk. All right, guys, hopefully you had fun with that one. I'm going to grab some lunch. I know it's not as good as a a whiteboard video uh, because the editors really make things super crystal clear. But uh, for those of you who had kind of like a a basic understanding, I'm pretty confident that you were able to kind of follow the whole uh, train of thought there. And uh, this is just, you know, one thing, one of the reasons why I say with the, the people uh, like the, the Austrians, which, uh, you know, I, I greatly respect. And a lot of these people I'd consider friends and there a lot of them are a hell of a lot smarter than I will ever be. But uh, it's, it's why I say that I don't know that um, all of them and maybe some have and I'm sure they have, but maybe all of them haven't necessarily thought through how that ledger money works, just the way Jeff Snyder has. And so I think that if you're able to understand things uh, the the way Snyder understands things, it kind of opens up your mind to the possibilities of uh, of, of the banks just not being constrained by anything, especially, especially, especially not bank reserves. So then what if they're not, then you you most likely would come to the conclusion that, well, wait a minute here. If the banks aren't constrained by anything the Fed has control over, maybe, just maybe, the Fed doesn't control money. Maybe it's the commercial banking system. So we, we have to ask ourselves, is it the Fed that's really, quote unquote, printing money? Or is it the commercial banks at the end of the day? And 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 I think it's especially when you walk through that, you see that, you know, the Fed taking their balance sheet from, let's say, 40 trillion or 40 billion back in 2007 to 50 billion, that, that, <laughs> that's just like a fly buzzing around your head, just a shoe fly, shoe fly, right? Um, and you can also see why them taking the bank reserves from, uh, let's say, 3.5 trillion up to f- uh, 4 trillion, it's just like, doing here they don't need your stupid bank reserves you're just pushing on a string 
You're just doing this for theatrics, right? And then I, I think this helps people that are under the impression uh, that's, uh, you know, that the Fed quote unquote prints money. Then you start to see that they might print bank reserves. Absolutely, 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 absolutely. Those bank reserves aren't legal tender. See, that, that that's a key here. And that the increase in bank reserves because of all of this other stuff that's happening with the banking system and offshore and in the shadows, that, that, that increase in bank reserves most likely won't really impact M2 and definitely won't impact the level of dollars that are circulating around the globe. You, you could say that IOR might have something. I, I, I'd agree there that if they, you know, if the Fed raised rates from 0% up to 10% overnight, you know, w- w- would that have an impact on, on M2 and global dollar supply? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It would. But again, that that's a nuanced discussion. And unless people are willing to get into the weeds, if they oversimplify it, it loses pretty much all of its accuracy. And that's why I continue to go over these things just nonstop with you guys, because, um, it's not that I'm trying to split hairs. It's not that I'm trying to you know, present an argument that's just based solely on semantics. It's that once, once you understand the details, you understand how crucial it is to actually understand the, the details and the difference between something like uh, bank reserves, let's say, and something like legal tender, which is what most people would define as quote unquote money. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Tons of stuff to talk about today. We'll get to some more live streams after lunch. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you on the next video.